Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. So, if we consider the, before we can consider the whole subject of particular wars, we have to talk about war in general, and as Christians, we have to talk about war in general with a biblical frame of reference. We cannot simply wing it. We cannot say, well, I approve of that war because my dad fought in it, or I approve of that war because I went to that war and my best friends were killed and I don't want to believe that they died for nothing, so I just am going to emotionally hang on to that war. As Christians, we have to evaluate everything in the light of the Word of God. Everything comes under the scrutiny of the Word of God. As it says in Corinthians, Paul tells us that we're to bring every thought captive. And this means that we are to bring every thought concerning war. Not only warfare in general, but wars in particular, captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is very important for us to do now, because if we don't, we're going to find ourselves in a horrible situation. The, the situation is, uh, is this. I don't know if you've ever seen a couple of big dogs fighting or getting ready to fight, and if one of the big dogs is getting ready to attack its adversary, if right before this happens a small little yippy dog comes up from behind and, and bites one of the big dogs, that big dog doesn't take to it too kindly. If nations are preparing to go to war, when you get to a certain point, uh, a war fever takes over. People uh, cannot, uh, um, especially unregenerate uh, people, people who don't know God, cannot fight in a disciplined way. What they, what they do is they try to hold themselves back, hold themselves back, but when they get to the point of no return and they let themselves go, they are not about to conduct a rational discussion with anybody. You're either for, for us or against us. So if you suddenly surface uh, when the war, war drums have started to pound and you start saying, um, excuse me, could we bring this uh, to the bar of Scripture? Could we evaluate this scripturally? They're going to say, what? Are you sympathetic to you know, whoever it is? Fill in the blank. We have to think these things through beforehand. We have to evaluate how we would respond in any given uh, situation, and we have to uh, have that be common knowledge among us so that we don't just sort of burst on the scene at the last minute when it's too late to affect public discourse, when it's too late to do anything about it. So we want to think through these uh, situations biblically. One of the best ways to do that is to put yourself in situations that Christians were in in the past. If you walk through, as we're going to walk through this weekend, the uh, the French and Indian War. If you, if you walk through the War for Independence, what would what about Romans 13 and and obeying the King and what what about all that and work through the issues of the War of 1812 and you and you walk through and say what would I have done, given these circumstances? What would I have done in this particular situation? You will not be guilty of uh, the error that someone pointed out when he said the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Uh, and that's, uh, that is tragically the case. Many people repeatedly fall into the same mistakes, make the same errors, commit the same blunders. And, there's, uh, and it's tragic because if the church were doing its job, uh, uh, fill, fulfilling its appointed task, we would have the option of evaluating these things scripturally. God has not left us with instructions about how to bring up your kids and how to discipline and educate your, your kids and how to love your wife and respect your husband. And, uh, you don't have uh, information from God on how to do all that. But then when it comes to life and death decisions, right, do I send my son off to war to fight in this particular 
situation? Do I support or oppose? Do I resist or do I uh, issue a prophetic stand against it? Or do I support it as a, as a godly call? What do I do? Well, we can't act as though God has left us without witness on this very important subject. And we can't start rummaging in the, witness, in the Word for that witness at the last minute. Uh, I'd like to begin by telling a, a story, although it doesn't involve war, it involves this principle of preparedness. And I'm not talking about physical preparedness, I'm talking about theological preparedness. Uh, I was 18 years old and uh, a seaman recruit in the Navy, U.S. Navy, and I just graduated from boot camp. And I was getting ready to go to quartermaster school, which is navigation school. And I went downtown San Diego on uh, Liberty. And while I was there, I bought uh, a nice buckskin coat. And this, this was 1971, so it, I was not out of it. <laughs> nothing, nothing sillier than to see kids fresh out of boot camp with their hair all kind of trying to, well, anyway. <laughs> That was neither here nor there. I had, a, I had this great buckskin coat, and I was walking back to the bus to go back to the base, and a bunch of guys came up, I forget how many, uh, a handful of guys, and they came up and they said, give us some money. And it was the long and short of it is I was being rolled or mugged or whatever you want to call it. Give us some money. And uh, basically I said, no, I'm not going to give you money. And one of them uh, uh, punched me. Just my glasses, you know, blam, my glasses flew off. Now, this is a bad time to do Bible study, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is, and, and this is the situation writ large. When we're dealing with warfare, this is, what we're, this is the kind of thing we're dealing with. Someone's just pasted you one. And I knew, I'm grown up in a Christian home, knew enough about the Bible, that Jesus said there was a verse that had something to do with this. Uh, <laughs> but I hadn't studied it. And... <laughs> So I thought, okay, well, here it goes. Let's, let's try it. And so I said, Jesus loves you, and I turned the other cheek. So he hit me again. <laughs> Blam! <laughs> so I did it again. I said, Jesus loves you, and turned the other cheek. Blam! And, well, then, just to, this was the Lord's sense of humor. Uh, they figured out that I was a Christian from all this. And, <laughs> and, the, and one of them said, give me that coat. I said, no, I'm not going to give you that coat. Well, the problem was I knew that the verse right next to the verse <laughs> turned, turned the other cheek. I was here, I was turning the other cheek. I was being a good little Christian. Blam, blam. And, but I wasn't about to give him that coat. It cost $40. You know, the, my face will heal up with $40. So I said, no, I'm not going to give you the coat. And, but I felt guilty because I knew it said in Scripture, it said, give me your shirt too on the principle that I was applying the first verse. I, so uh, I felt guilty. And so as soon as I felt guilty about that, I gave them whatever I had in my wallet, 10 bucks. And as soon as they got 10 bucks or whatever it was, they ran off. And as soon as they ran off, I knew that that was the wrong thing to do. Like strike four. <laughs> now, there's a whole series of events here. And the principle is it involved violence or your readiness to fight. And in a situation like that, you cannot say, okay, what's my theology on this? What's my... What's my position on this? You cannot have some crisis uh, erupt in the Middle East or some crisis erupt in the Far East, have the president call up the troops, call up the reserves, uh, say, everybody get down there and get your draft number, and say, 
and and then start saying, okay, okay, what do I do? What do I do? Well, think it through beforehand. Have settled scriptural convictions beforehand. Now, there's another uh, issue involved here. Uh, the British parliamentarian uh, Enoch Powell said, history is littered with wars that people knew would never happen. Okay, we assume that peace, the peace that we currently enjoy, is forever, and it just flat isn't. It, it, it plain and simply isn't. We are going to see warfare again. We are going to see warfare, in my conviction, uh, again and close to home. I don't think it's going to be uh, a distant war where our sons go off to war, but I think we're going to see warfare close to home, and I think we have to think these things through. Okay. Uh, on your outline, as we, uh, sometimes I will follow the outline, sometimes I'll probably uh, wander off. But at the beginning of your outline, in the introduction, uh, I make a distinction on, between corporate decision-making and individual decision-making. The decision to have a war is corporate. It is made by a people's covenantal representatives, their covenantal heads. There are people um, in, the, uh, in the Congress and in the President's cabinet and the executive and, and so forth who either know a lot more about the situation than you do or ought to know a lot more about the situation than you do. They, they have the responsibility to know more about it than you do. Now, sometimes they don't, but they have that responsibility to know more about it than you do. And they are the ones who make the decision to go to war. The decision to go to war as an individual is an individual decision. Am I a conscientious objector? Does the Bible prohibit this? Uh, am I not a pacifist, but am I, an, am I someone who objects to this kind of war? If we were guilty of a, of a gross war of aggression, would Christians who are not pacifists in principle still be conscientious objectors to this particular war? Uh, and I think you'll, you'll see that there are numerous instances in American history where conscientious Christians should have been conscientious objectors to a particular course of military action. So, uh, once an individual man decides to go to war, his individual behavior in combat has corporate ramifications. Responsibility flows up and down. The corporate uh, covenantal heads of a nation make the decision, and they should make the decision with good information and in submission to scriptural standards. And individual Christians should make the decision of being submissive or not to their, to their rulers when this decision is made. Now, when the church was in her infancy, and I'm not talking about Pente after Pentecost, I'm talking about the infancy and toddler toddlerhood of the church in the Old Testament, the question of war was a very simple one. I, I quote Psalm 144.1, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Um, in the Old Testament, the saints of God were not shy at all about the propriety of going to war. There was no question about it. But part of the reason for this was that Israel was God's chosen people. God spoke to them directly. Uh, he had established their form of worship. He spoke through the prophets. He would lead them with the, uh, the Urim and Thummim. He would guide them. He would oversee what they, what they did. Uh, and so his relationship with the Jewish state at that time was different than his relationship with Canada, the United States, Mexico. It was a, there's a different arrangement that has been established under the New Covenant. At that time, God could say, I want you to go here and wipe out them. All right, he, he gave a revelation of a specific will. He could tell his people to go to war in the first place, as he did in Joshua 8.1. He could tell them what particular strategy to use. He could say, this 
will work against them and, and uh, tell them how to fight. Uh, and we have a reference to that in 2 Samuel 5, uh, 23 through 25. And he could tell them, all right, when you take prisoners, these are the ones that I want you to execute among the captives. All right, we, we're not in that situation. God has not given us divine revelation about going to war with a particular nation. He's not told us what strategies to employ. He's not told us how to handle the captives in terms of a specific special revelation. This was a unique state of affairs for the church in her infancy when the church was closely associated with the Jewish state. Now, at Pentecost, what happened was we, we see the beginning of the internationalization of the church. The, the church is, um, as James put it, at the Council of Jerusalem, uh, David's tent pegs are spread out, and the, and the church becomes an international body and is not exclusively Jewish. You recall that the first great controversy in the Christian church was whether a Gentile could become a Christian without becoming a Jew first. That was what they were dealing with. That's what they were grappling with. And, of course, the Jerusalem Council um, established what is, uh, what was and is Christ's will, and that is that people will call on Christ from every tribe, language, nation. We have the true internationalization of the church. Now, this creates a very interesting problem because now we have a church not just in, in the Jewish state, but we have a, a church in the Roman Empire. We have a church uh, in Arabia. We have the church... Uh, get, getting planted and established in many, uh, under the authority of many different civil realms, some of which occasionally go to war with one another. So what are believers to do when they are in this situation with a, with a civil realm that is not yet Christian? Now, of course, what Christ told us to do in the Great Commission was to disciple those nations, but in order to disciple those nations, you've got to go there and, and plant churches and establish the work and see the kingdom of God uh, advanced in that nation, and, and you can't do that in five or ten minutes. You have to plant churches and have people live their lives there and raise their children and, ra and see their grandchildren grow up. You have to live there over generations in order to affect a culture. Well, during that space of time, that country can go to war. Well, what do I do? And the king or the president or whatever comes to you and says, all right, time for your sons to go to war against whomever. Now, this is the problem of war in the Christian era. In the Old Testament, when God gave his specific re revealed will, the problem of war is virtually non-existent in the Old Testament. The only problem associated with war is obedience or disobedience. Either you went to war when God told you not to, or you refused to go to war when God told you to. So it was a straight-up or straight-down uh, issue, uh, obedience or disobedience. Now, we have to take principles that are given generally in the Word of God and apply those principles to specific situations because um, the, the foundation of the apostles and prophets has been laid. We don't have a prophet coming up to the president or uh, appearing before Congress uh, saying, go up and the Lord will give, deliver them into your hand. That, um, that, is not, uh, that is not something that God is doing for us today. So, absent divine revelation for each occasion, and now under the second head on your outline, absent divine revelation for each particular occasion, Christian thinkers, after the time of Christ, began to grapple with the problem of identifying scriptural principles which could be used to evaluate any given military conflict. I need to interject something here. A lot of uh, pacifists have made much of the fact that early Christians, the first few generations of Christians refused military service um, 
in the Roman Empire. And I think they've made more of that than they ought to because there was a real problem in the Roman armies. And that was the way you said the Pledge of Allegiance, the way you committed your, uh, demonstrated your commitment to the army was through idolatry. And so the Christians, um, there were Christian military men uh, who had to be excluded as soon as the idolatry became a test case. You, well, you're not a true soldier unless you swear allegiance in this fashion and do it in, a, in an idolatrous manner. Well, of course the Christians couldn't do that. So because the army was pagan and idolatrous, many Christians were excluded in the first few generations. But by the time of Augustine, Augustine li lived in the 300s, early 400s. By the, by the time of Augustine, we see a major theologian of the first rank address the problem of the just war. What is a just war? Now, remember, we're dealing with overarching principles and not with specific revelations of God's will. Now, since Augustine's day, the principles uh, that he set forth have been refined considerably and people have built upon them considerably, but they still deal with the same basic problem. The problem of Christian restraint on what tends to be completely unrestrained violence. There are many people who are pagan and, and reprobate and unregenerate, and, th and they don't have any particular desire to go to war. They don't have any particular desire to um, see all their kids slaughtered and so forth. But once they get to a particular point where they're riled up enough, either through greed and covetousness if they're the aggressor, or through anger and bitterness and resentment if they are the oppressed, if they get to the, po the point where they are willing to go to war, they oftentimes, almost never, do they draw fine uh, distinctions. They, they just say, let's go to war, kill them all. all right? um, there was a, a saying in Vietnam that was an echo of uh, what the uh, Catholic persecutors uh, said in Europe many centuries before, and that was, kill them all, let God sort them out. Okay, kill them all, let God sort them out. That's how the natural man behaves when he goes to war. That's how the natural man behaves. He, he tends to unrestrained violence. And the Christian problem is that of salt and light in an ungodly society. It's, it's you know, one problem to say, how do I deal with my neighbor who wants to watch R-rated movies all the time? How, how, do I influence, how, how do I exercise salt and light in, in this situation? It's another when my neighbor wants to kill everybody in the next village, when my, when my neighbor wants to um, commit atrocities and so forth. This is the problem of Christian restraint on what tends to be unrestrained violence. Not only how can we be salt and light to the unbelievers, but how can we exercise enough teaching and responsibility so that we restrain even the believers who, if they're poorly taught, can be caught up in the, um, in the bloodthirst. All right, so the problem can be divided in two. The principles that we're dealing with are two sets of principles. The first concerns whether or not a particular war is justified. All right, is this war justified in the first place? That's, um, and the, the name for this is Josad uh, Bellum, right? the justification or the, the justice of, uh, of going to the war. The ad bellum means to the war. And then the second concerns the regulation of conduct, both corporate and individual. The matter of policy, for example, do we drop the atom bomb on Japan? Do we firebomb Dresden? That's a corporate responsibility. And then individual concerns of the pilots and the soldiers and the people who have to execute the order. This is the just in bello uh, uh, criteria. These are the, the just in bello criteria. So do we go to war in the first place? Is this a righteous cause? And then secondly, given that it's a righteous cause and we may go, 
obviously not every means at our disposal um, is is responsible and, and godly, and so we have to define what those means are. Now sometimes, if I could anticipate the end of my talk here, some people might say, well, for crying out loud, you're going to war and you're trying to kill people. Shouldn't you just try to kill as many as you can? Well, uh, if the only objective were uh, taking out human life, then, yeah, that, that makes sense in a pragmatic, Machiavellian way. But if you look at the last section, if I could rearrange um, some of my points, uh, at the very end, two pages later, quoting C.S. Lewis, uh, he says, Christendom has made two efforts to deal with the evil of war. Christendom has made two efforts to deal with the evil of war, chivalry and pacifism. Chivalry and pacifism. Neither succeeded, but I doubt whether chivalry has such an unbroken record of failure as pacifism. In other words, uh, the chivalric ideal of, you know, I'm not an animal. I don't have the right to just come completely unglued. I don't have the right to go sideways just because I'm at war. And sometimes this means that you observe what may appear to a dispassionate observer very clearly arbitrary restraints. Probably the best um, example I can think of in this regard, and I think it's a good restraint, is the loathing that we have of the idea of gas warfare, right? Using um, using nerve gas or poison gas in warfare. When it was experimented with in the first world war, in the first world war, it so filled people with horror that we would kill people in this way um, that they. Ever since we've just been. Uh, very, very skittish about it. It doesn't keep us from developing the weapons, but they've not been employed on a massive scale for a long time, and it's because of this uh, a sense of restraint. I, I can't, I don't have the right to come completely unglued simply because I'm at war. All right, so uh, let's come back to the the first page here: the just ad bellum criteria and the just in bello criteria. Conduct uh, in the war, and is the second and your conduct toward the war, deciding whether uh, to go to war, is the first. Now, with regard to the first, the, the criteria that have been de developed in the history of the church. Now, remember, we don't have the Bible saying, go to war in the Persian Gulf, or don't go to war in the Persian Gulf. We don't have that option, so we have to think scripturally. We have to think Christianly. We, we can't say, well, the Bible, God doesn't care whether I go to war. God doesn't care whether I go off and shoot my neighbor. Well, clearly, in Scripture, God cares about these sorts of things. And so clearly, we must think biblically. We must learn to discipline our minds and function as Christians. Now, this is uh, these five criteria are, are um, criteria that have been hammered out over the centuries by the Christian church. It's not the work of any one man. The effort begins in a major way with Augustine and continues down to the present. Number one, it must be declared by a competent authority. You know, uh, Bob here can't go to war with uh, Fred, his next-door neighbor. You, you, it has to be declared by a competent authority. Number two, it must have a just cause. Number three, the waging of the war must have a proportional sense of means and ends. You don't go killing ants with a baseball bat. Number four, peaceful means of addressing the quarrel must have been exhausted. Peaceful means of addressing the quarrel must have been exhausted. And number five, the nation going to war must have right intent. Now, I'm going to come back to two of these um, and, and develop them in particular, but I want to speak in layman's terms as I, as I ha have on the outline. 
What does this mean? Well, it means that the war is declared by Congress and not by private individuals or the UN. For example, the UN is not a competent authority. Uh, a private individual is not a competent authority. The state of Idaho is not a competent authority to declare war. That is out of their jurisdiction. So it has to be declared by Congress. And it's very interesting how we've slipped off of this um, in recent years. We, we do not want war to be declared by that body that the Constitution assigns the declaration of war to, and that is Congress. We want the president to have executive authority to send the troops here and there. And then Congress has said, well, if you keep them there over a year or two, we, we want to say something about it. But that's not what the Constitution says. Secondly, uh, for, the, um, for the second of the criteria, it should be to repel invasion, for example, and not to adjust the price of wheat in Burundi. Um, well, if we drive the price of wheat down a couple of cents a, a, a bushel, then that'll benefit so-and-so who contributed to my campaign. All right, that's not a just cause. Repelling invasion, uh, fighting off an invader who's going to sack your cities and homes and uh, take your wives and children off into captivity, that's a just cause. But uh, manipulation of global markets, fine-tuning things, using it as an instrument of uh, uh, adjusting the machinery is not a just cause. We should not go nuclear, for example, against Canada over a fishing dispute at Lake Winnetonka. I don't know if there is a Lake Winnetonka. I just made that up. Just, just assume that there's a tiny little lake on the border uh, here. This addresses number three. You have to have a proportional sense of means and ends. You don't, you don't let something escalate out of all sense of proportion. Right? You have to have an understanding of proportionality. Number four, where it says uh, peaceful means of addressing the quarrel must have been exhausted. That's self-explanatory. Lethal violence should be employed reluctantly. Lethal violence should be employed reluctantly. Now, this is particularly difficult because when you're reluctant to go to war, you're reluctant to go to war. If you are restrained in what you do, then you're not, gonna, uh, you're not going to be building yourself up to a fever pitch. Sometimes uh, people are just... Out of their um, out of their senses when it comes to these things, and and you think, you know, these people are not living in the same moral universe that Christians ought to inhabit. For example, at uh, at uh, First Manassas, when the war between the states uh, broke out, or um, as is known in the north as uh, Bull Run, at that fir at the first battle where the, all the inhabitants of Washington were packing picnic baskets. Um, to go out and watch the battle as though it were a lark. This is a, this is a fun thing to do. In, uh, uh, so let's go, let's go watch the killing. That sort of mentality is not w wanting to achieve a peaceable solution. They're not trying to exhaust all the honorable and peaceable means of uh, resolving the, the difficulty. And then the last thing, number five, the nation going to war must have a right intent. Uh, the genuine aim of the war should be genuine and lawful peace and not a smokescreen for something else. Now, probably the best example of a smokescreen for something else will be um, the Spanish-American War that we'll deal with uh, tomorrow. We had this bone to pick with Spain over Cuba and then the, the sinking of the Maine. But we'll, what we were really interested in was acquiring all the Spanish uh, lands, the Philippines and Guam and Puerto Rico. and uh, That's what we were really interested in. And this... this uh, problem that we had with Spain was sort of the, the chip on the shoulder. And, uh, and so 
we want to make sure that, that our, our aims, our intents are lawful. Now, I have this italicized on the bottom of the page. An awful lot still needs to be unpacked from Numbers 2 and 5. You notice that must have a just cause, and the nation going to war have a right intent. That just pushes the whole question of a just war back uh, one step. Right? So what's a just cause? How do you, what are the criteria for establishing a just cause? Now, that's something that we're going to try to develop over the, uh, the course of these talks. What constitutes, biblically speaking, a just cause? What constitutes, biblically speaking, a right intent? Okay. Um, now, in the, with regard to our conduct in war itself, the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that the complexities of modern warfare are immense. It, there was a time when you went to fight the neighbors in the next village, and they had their rocks, and you had your rocks. It was very easy to see what was going on, and it's still the same with infantry today. You know, they're in their trench over there, and we're in our trench over here, and we're trying to shoot them, and they're trying to shoot us. And the the reality of what you're doing is is borne in on you. But in modern warfare, there are other factors. I remember one time I, I was in the submarine service, and I remember one time we were—I forget where we were—but we were at, we were at battle stations in the submarine, and it was a it was a drill. We were not uh, in a genuine uh, genuine war. Or we weren't shooting. Uh, we weren't in a live war, but we were at battle stations. And I looked around. I was in the navigation department, which meant I was in the control room of the submarine. And I looked around, and here we are at battle stations. And what I saw when I looked around this room was a room full of computers and men sitting, manning them, and it was dim light and red light, and all these men were doing math problems. This is modern war. We're in a room full of computers uh, doing math problems furiously. Right? That's, that's war. Well, our brothers in the Army might say, no, that's not, you know. <laughs> that, that, no, that's not war. Well, dead's dead, right? Uh, what you're doing is... You know, it's one thing where you go over the top and you have this heroic charge and whoa. You know, another thing to be doing math furiously to the end. You know, carry the two. <laughs> All right. So the complexities of modern warfare are immense, but as Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, nothing is new under the sun. We like to pretend that these complexities, the, the technology of, of the weaponry that changes, uh, some of us were uh, just quite honestly uh, overwhelmed at the sophistication of our weaponry in the Persian Gulf War. You know, you send some cruise missile, and to give you an illustration, we've got it to the point where you could launch a cruise missile in, in Boston and fly it down to Washington, D.C., and fly it through the goalposts at the football stadium there. Just say, this is the way, um, this is the way it's going to go. Now... This, uh, these complexities are sort of gee whiz gadgetry, but these complexities are um, the kind of thing that don't alter the fundamental facts. Here we are trying to kill other, these other people for a particular reason they're trying to kill us. So what, um, what are we to do? So we turn to Scripture, as I said earlier, we should satisfy ourselves, and we can satisfy ourselves, that military service is in itself lawful, and I want to emphasize, even if the magistrate is pagan, even if the magistrate 
is uh, an unbeliever. Now, and we have some examples in Scripture. In Acts 10, we see that Cornelius was a military man, and he was a military man in the service of Rome. Rome was not a bastion of righteousness. It was um, a source of stability and order in the world, but it was not uh, righteous or believing or submissive to the law of God and Christ. And Cornelius was a military man in her service, and he was a good man. And his military service was not inconsistent with that goodness. Christ found no faith in Israel like that of the centurion, as he commented in Matthew uh, chapter 8. He said, in all Israel, the covenant people of God, I've not, I've not met anybody with a faith like this, uh, like this centurion. Thirdly, in Luke chapter 3, when, when soldiers came to John the Baptist and asked him, what, what do we do? He told them to be content with their pay, which obviously presupposes that they're going to continue receiving it. Right? If he says, be content, um, don't, be, um, don't be upset or distressed or, or bitter or uh, uh, malcontents about your pay. He's, he's saying, I want you to be good Christians and good soldiers uh, simultaneously. I want you to be good Christians and good soldiers simultaneously. And so the complexities of modern warfare don't, don't alter that. A military men to this day like to grumble about their pay. They like to grumble about the conditions. They like to grumble. Well, the Word of God tells soldiers, Christian soldiers, what to do, even if the Christian soldiers are um, in the service of an unbelieving magistrate. Now, when a Christian goes to war, even if, and actually especially if the system over him is unbelieving, he remains a moral agent. He, he cannot say, well, I, I was just obeying orders. He cannot say, well... I just checked my brains in um, when I joined the service, I, and I'll pick them up when I, when I leave. Uh, it is quite true that he may not be competent to decide whether the war itself is justified. You know, imagine some 18-year-old kid right off the farm. He's capable of fighting. He's capable of being a very good soldier, but he may not be capable of following um, all the nuances of the 10 years of diplomacy that went uh, into the build-up to this war, which started when he was eight years old. He, it's just over his head. And the Bible does not require every uh, soldier or sailor to be an amateur theologian or every mother and father who has a son who might be a soldier or sailor to be an amateur uh, theologian. So he might, not, he might not be competent to determine whether the war itself is justified. Someone else will answer to God for that. Okay. Now, that's not an absolute... Um, uh, that's not an absolute whitewash. There are things that ordinary people can use to determine whether funny business is going on, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. Uh, but fundamentally, someone else is responsible and will answer to God for whether the war is just. But he can still know himself to be justified in going to war. This is an, an important distinction. It is possible, given Scripture, for a Christian honorably to go to war serve his country, and fight in what the last day will reveal to have been an unjust cause. Okay, It is possible for a Christian to go to war, to do so honorably, to discharge his obligations with the best information he had at his disposal, and fight as the last day will reveal in an unjust cause. And it's, his not, it's not his responsibility to unravel all this. Uh, God is sovereign. We are not sovereign. But it is his duty to understand what God's word um, expects of him uh, in bellow, in the conduct of the war. And if he's commanded to do what he knows to be contrary to Scripture, right, where 
Um, for example, the, he's, they're told to go into a, a town or a, a hamlet, and they're told to burn the place down and rape all the women and destroy them, and the troops are, simple, are just simply out of control. He knows that this is God-hating activity. And when he, when he sees that in front of him, it is, it is, it is his moral duty to uh, resist that. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it well. He said, I feel certain that one Christian airman shot for refusing to bomb enemy civilians would be a more effective martyr than a hundred Christians in jail for, re for refusing to join the army. All right. uh, probably a good example of this recently is, uh, I think, the very gr great and courageous behavior of Michael New, who has refused to wear the UN um, uh, badge because he did not take an oath uh, to do so. He, he, he believes that he would be violating what he swore to do if he uh, came under the command of the UN. He didn't commit himself to do that. He's not going to do that. And, his, uh, and he's a very modest, quiet uh, Christian soldier, was homeschooled, brought up, and has um, made major waves Right, in the in the military establishment on just this principle, he said, "No, I thus far and no farther. I'm not go I'm not going to do that." If there is wickedness in high places, which engineered the war, and we're going to consider quite a few examples of this over the uh, over the course of this conference, if there's wickedness in high places on our side, which engineered the war, and there frequently is, then their plans will be more quickly frustrated by a consistent Christian soldiery than by squads of amateur cabinet ministers second-guessing whether the cause of the war was the Illuminati or Swiss bankers or oil interests. If you have people out in the trenches, out in the, out in the fleet, and they, they know what their responsibilities are scripturally, and they're going to do what God says they may do, and they're going to refuse to do what God says they may not do, that, um, it's very interesting. That whole scenario is a very great frustration to people who are in positions of power. And the thing that's interesting about this is this is one of the ways, if I could uh, um, go off the path for a moment, this is one of the ways affirmative action is being used in the military today. Uh, we say, well, we should give other people a, uh, other people a chance, and we have to we have to keep it from being dominated by Anglo-Saxon, you know, Protestant types. But what what is actually happening, and this is very, um, this is a, I guess a, I think it's a fundamental problem, and it illustrates this principle. So many things are going on in the military now. Uh, homosexuals in the military uh, sending women out to sea. Um, in uh, sending them out in the fleet, wondering why they keep getting pregnant, you know. What's the problem? Um, we, we are a schizophrenic society. We want to be sexually, sexually libertine. We want to be sexual libertines, and we want to respect the purity and dignity of women. Well, you can't have it both ways. You, you just can't have it both ways. You, you, you can't be here and not here at the same time. Well, you send all these women out uh, to sea. You, send, you start imposing uh, things that are fundamentally anti-Christian. Right? You start blocking promotion of people who are conservative and Christian. People get passed over for saying, as um, one high-ranking military man recently was, he, he opposed the whole idea of women in combat, which we're going to address uh, here shortly. Someone says, I, I am opposed to women in combat. I don't think that's right. He's passed over for, for promotion. He's disciplined. He's hammered. What's happening is 
in the, the language of egalitarianism, the language of equality, and affirmative action is being used to purge these frustrating Christians out. Right? There are many Christian, Christian young men who would join the Navy, join the Army, and get involved, but they, are, they now know that it's an inhospitable place for a believer to be. Right? They now know that, and the word is out, and the people who are um, engineering this or, or bringing this to effect are testifying to the retardant effect of Christians in the military. They don't like them there because Christians who are in their... Um, in their positions at their battle station who say, well, I'm going to do what God says to do, but not a step farther. Is, um, that is a very great frustration to these people who want to engineer, uh, re-engineer uh, our society and make it according to their uh, purpose and plan. A number of years ago, there was an interesting experiment done by some psychologists, although it doesn't directly bear on the military issue. I think it does uh, bear on the whole question of following orders. They, they had a hypothesis, and the hypothesis was, we're going to get a bunch of people from authoritarian Christian background, and we're going to tell them we're doing a science experiment, and we're going to bring them in this little room, and we're going to tell them to you know, turn this uh, knob or to, to do this, and it's hooked up to a patient, and this is all scientific, and we're going to inflict pain on this person. And we're going to see how far he will go if a guy in a white, a guy in a, an authority figure in a white lab coat and a clipboard is saying, go ahead, another notch, you know, turn it another notch. And this person starts showing discomfort and then starts screaming, stop it, stop it, turn it off. And the scientist says, no, it's all right, another notch. All right? And their hypothesis was authoritarian Christians would say, oh boy, you know, turn it all the way up. And, and relativists, uh, relativists and agnostics would say, what are you doing? Well, what happened was just the reverse. Right? It was just the opposite. They found the people who had no moral frame of reference obeyed the guy with the white lab coat. And the people who had a higher frame of reference, an ultimate frame of reference, said, no, this is wrong. I'm out of here. I'm not going to do this. Are you, are you out of your mind? Well, it's the same sort of thing in a military situation. If an authority figure says to a soldier or sailor, do this, do that, do the other thing, people with set biblical convictions are much more likely to be a frustration to the people who want to engineer some great wickedness than people who are not. Okay. How do we know from the trenches? How do we know from our position as average citizens? All we know is what we read in the papers, and that is increasingly obvious, uh, not much. That's, uh, that doesn't give you the inside account of what's actually occurring. If the, if the magistrate is the one that God has appointed to make the decision to go to war, then are we completely blind on what we are to do? Are we completely blind about whether they're doing their job or not? Um, well, no. The ad bellum criteria should be applied by the magistrate. That's true. They should do this while publicly acknowledging that God will judge them for the decisions they make. All right? They should appeal to uh, divine authority and providence, and they should invoke God's curses on themselves if they are wrong. They should, they should say, as God is my witness, I am making this decision uh, not lightly, um, but what our magistrates do today is they appeal not to the, not to God, not to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but to the American people. And they'll they'll make humanistic appeals. I'm I've agonized over this. I've, and they'll use sometimes use the language of prayer, but it's not the language of covenantal accountability. They don't say, "May God strike me down if I intend wickedness in my heart." That's not. <laughs> 
Can you just imagine? <laughs> All the cabinet ministers doing this. You know. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> what are you going doing that for? Okay, those who observe the magistrate making this decision may be more confident that they are doing right in those areas that are necessarily out of public view. You don't want to say, well, our CIA operative in the Middle East told us that, and his name is, and here's his phone number if you want to check. Um, those things are necessarily out of public view. The, we, we do not want to go to war in a pure democracy. We, we don't want every man doing what is right in his own eyes. We have to have covenant representatives who make these decisions for us. But we also have to hold them accountable. We have to have some sort of cri uh, criteria that we hold up to them, some sort of standard that we apply to them. So there are numerous areas which are in full view, which which if we see their obedience to these things, we can have greater confidence that they're following God's standards when they're out of public view. When they're out of sight, are they honoring God? Well, it's a very simple question. Do they honor God when they're with me? All right. Do they honor God when they are doing those things that I can see? Uh, to illustrate, suppose you had a friend who, whenever he was around you, just had a filthy mouth, just took the Lord's name in vain, was obscene, gross, everything. You wouldn't say, when he walked around the corner, I wonder if he cleans up his language You know, when he's talking to his other friends. No, the way he's behaving in your presence gives you a good indicator of how he's behaving in the presence of others. The way the magistrate conducts himself in those things that God has given to us all to understand from the Word is a good indicator of whether uh, he is honoring God in those areas where uh, we can't have access to all the facts. And I've got a number of these things listed here. Number one, and this is so important, the military should not be manned through conscription. There should not be a draft. If you have to put a gun to people's heads to make them go to war, to make them hold a gun, then something's seriously wrong with your whole endeavor to begin with. If you have a just cause, remember our earlier criteria and those things that we understand to be clearly a just cause. The dreaded enemy has landed on our beaches and they're marching on our town. Um, you got a just cause. You're also not going to have any problem getting up an army. <laughs> Are you, when, when the cause is obviously just, you're not going to have to go door to door saying, um, you need to be drafted. We need to summon you. We have to make you come. Now, I've, uh, when uh, I joined the Navy in 1971, and uh, Vietnam was winding down. The draft was still in full force, and every year, if you were 18 years old, you got your draft number, and they had this big lottery, and you, I think it was done by your birthday, and if your birthday was June 18th, like mine was, your number was like number 19, something like that. So out of 365, uh, you get a 19 or a 364, and they said, all right, we're going to come after you, and you're going to go um, defend your country. Now, of course, many people were glad to do just that, but the whole, the, we should be suspicious of any state that has to round people up at the point of a bayonet and make them go to war. Either that nation is uh, fallen away from God's standards, it's wicked and evil if you have to do that, or they're desperate. All right, they, they have, they've already admitted they've lost the wars, as Germany did near the end of the Second World War, where they were just taking boys, you know, young teenage boys, and putting them in planes and sending them up to, to fight. That, that's a, um, an admission of, that we're desperate. We have people that 
um, that shouldn't be fighting. And, and this sort of conscription is, um, is not found in Scripture. When the war is just, an able-bodied man can sin by refusing to go. I do believe that when the cause is just, a man who's capable of fighting is sinning if he, if he walks away from an opportunity that God has clearly put in front of him. But that sin ought not to be a crime. That sin should be recognized as a sin. The person should be disgraced through his refusal to go, but he ought not to be uh, uh, penalized. We see this when Gideon goes to war. Uh, God says, send everybody home. All right? he, he has different ways of weeding them out. Look, if you're not into this, go home. Right, if you're not into this, go home. And a bunch of people went home. If you're afraid, go home. That's the way you want. That's the way you need to do business. Um, and then he weeded it out further so that the glory would go uh, entirely to God. But principle number one: the military should not be manned through conscription. It should not be manned through a draft. Number two: the war effort should not fall on children. The um, age for going to war in the Hebrew army was 20 years old. Okay, you had to be 20 years old if you're going to go to war. Um, you couldn't go if you were a 17-year-old hothead. Uh, God says, no. 17-year-olds think that war is cool, war is fun, um, and it just simply isn't. The war effort should not fall on children, and God uh, gives the age of 20 years old, and that, that was the uh, beginning age for the Hebrew uh, army. A nation which defends herself with women in combat no longer deserves to be defended. Now, uh, those that might sound strong and, and not PC, and, and I hope so. <laughs> the assumption throughout Scripture, it's in Deuteronomy 20, it, it is every man who's 20 years old and up. Uh, there are things that women are, uh, where women are far superior to men, and uh, fighting in war is not one of them. Uh, men are good at some things that women are not good at, and women are good at things that men are not good at, and fighting in war is one of the things that men are good at. Now, we have been propagandized. If you don't see, if you don't see the propaganda uh, coming at you night after night, song after song, sitcom after sitcom, well, first is why do you let yourself be exposed to all this propaganda? But if you are exposed to it, um, and then you're paying attention to it. You don't even, you don't even see it anymore. Uh, there's a great account in Thucydides. There was a, a city under siege. Thucydides was a Greek historian who wrote an account of the Peloponnesian War. And Thucydides said there was a city under siege and they were grossly undermanned. So they got rounded up all the women, or a bunch of the women in, in uh, the city, and dressed them up in soldiers' uniforms and posted them all along the wall, had them walking around and everything. Um, so the opposing army could say, whoa, you know. But the women were under strict orders not to throw anything. <laughs> no. Oh. Now, that comment of mine is on tape, and it will no doubt uh, cost me plenty in years to come. <laughs> um, we don't see ourselves losing our, our, um, our position as a Christian people by increments, and we've, there have been so, so many increments have, have uh, gone through the ratchet. So many, so many things have happened here that we are now at the point where you have uh, conscientious Christians saying, well, why not, and how come, and what's the deal? And, um, 
the, and this is not, I want to emphasize something. This is not a, an example of me being old-fashioned. This is, I believe, a biblical principle. In Nehemiah, I don't think I have that reference down here, but in Nehemiah, Nehemiah strengthens the men and he tells them that they should go out and fight for their wives and for their children. Men should protect their wives and their children. And when their sons get old enough, when their sons are 20 years old, their sons, a multitude of sons are a great blessing because they stand with a man when he contends with his enemies in the gate. When, when the Bible says that, uh, that children are a blessing, and the Bible says that very clearly. It's not because it's talking about the pitter of little feet around the house. It's talking about soldiers. All right? A man is blessed who has his quiver full of them. A man who is blessed if, if he has ten sons who will stand with him contending with his enemies in the city gates. And that's a very gr great blessing. Now, of course, it's a horrible uh, situation if a man has ten sons and eight of them are on the other side. It's a horrible curse when, as David found him, himself, his son Absalom is the general of the other side. All right, so children are a covenantal blessing, and that means they're a covenantal blessing or a curse, depending on how they're brought up. But a man who has his quiver full of them, if he has been a diligent father, this man is greatly, tremendously blessed. Number four, an assumption throughout Scripture is that apart from divine revelation, women and children are not a lawful military target. Okay, ch women and children are not a lawful military target unless God himself told you through the prophet, and you know it's a prophet of God, that this is an act of mine, and your military destruction of this Canaanite city is equivalent to an earthquake or a hurricane. It is an act of God. Now, many people, when they read through the Old Testament the first time, they see the destruction of women and children and the Canaanites, and A, they don't know how wicked the Canaanites were. They don't know how, how abominably bad that whole section of the country was, that, that whole section of Palestine was. And secondly, they don't see it as God's limitation. He tells them when to do this. So just as he speaks to the winds and the waves and speaks to the earth and the earth, earthquake destroys a city or a volcano destroys a city as, uh, as Vesuvius did uh, Pompeii, when the Israelites went into a place and they killed everyone, the men, women, children, and the animals, and then they mowed the grass, or they just destroyed everything. God told them to do that sometimes, and it was an act of God, not an act of the Israelites. It was not something that they had the authority to initiate on their own. So, since we are not fighting under uh, the authority of divine specific revelation, women and children, civilians are not a lawful military target. So, for example, our firebombing of Dresden in the Second World War was an act of unspeakable wickedness. Okay, now we are used to thinking uh, we are still scaring our children with uh, visions of Hitler and, you know, Hitler was wicked and war crimes and genocide. And that's quite true. He was abominably, uh, he was an abominably evil man. He was a wicked man. But we want to do the white hats, black hats thing. We were, uh, we were guilty of some monstrous war crimes in the Second World War. Um, the firebombing of Dresden was one of them. Dresden was not a military target. It, it did not have military significance. It was an act of terrorism, pure and simple. And we bombed it back into the Stone Age, and we did it on purpose in order to terrorize the populace. It was, it was just simply wicked. After the Second World War, we herded, our troops herded Russians back onto trains to go back to Russia at the point of a bayonet. We, we just herded them back, knowing that they were going to be sent back to be exterminated. And it was in... Uh, the interests of our policy to do so. So our hands are not clean, even even when we're fighting someone horribly 
uh, horribly wicked as we were in the Second World War. Apart from divine revelation, women and children are not a lawful military target. Five, the Inbello criteria should be embraced by the authorities, but they must be understood and implemented by soldiers. And this means that you have to enforce the criteria that you establish with discipline. Scriptural principles of warfare should be taught. They should be promulgated, taught, and enforced with discipline. Um, now, the, the Navy, speaking from my own experience, knows how to get the word out. For example, uh, if, on our submarine, every time you went to the, um, to the john, to the head, as we called it, in the stall, on the inside of the stall was a big poster with the Universal Code of Military Justice. Right, every stall, so every sailor could study that thing. <laughs> they, they, wanted every, they wanted everybody to know exactly what they expected. This is the Universal Code of Military Justice. This is what you do in this situation, this situation. But it must be, it must be enforced. There must be discipline when things uh, are when there's disobedience. Um, in one instance, uh, with what I would call true disciplinary eloquence, George Washington once hanged several of his soldiers for, was a, uh, I forget what the exact offense was, but it was a grievous offense. He hanged them from a tree, and then he marched his entire army by the tree. Right? He got every information and marched them by and said, I want you to look at that. This is what happens. Now, when, when you have a disciplined army, you don't have raping and pillaging and all these all these things. And this is how God expects the Hebrews to go to war. He says, in one campaign, the spoils are mine. In another campaign, he says, you may keep the spoils. But the underwriting assumption is that you're in control at all times. You're not, you're not just going out of control. You are responsible for what you do at all times, including in warfare. Now, my suggested development of the just war criteria number two, that is it has to have a just cause and it has to be uh, conducted with right intent, would also include the axiom that the evaluation of just cause and right intent be conducted while holding the magistrate, the magistrate to the tightest applications of what God has required the magistrate to do. Uh, for example, in Romans 13, we're told what God expects of the magistrate. We're told that God has given his instructions to kings and princes and those in authority. And we should take those things that they're trying to do, uh, for example, if the rallying cry, as it was in the First World War, is let's make the world safe for democracy. Okay, if that's the rallying cry, we should open our Bibles and say, All right, where does it say we should make the world safe for democracy? A, is democracy a good thing? The Bible says no. All right, that's the first thing. Democracy is a bad thing. It's not a good thing. So we shouldn't be trying to make the world safe for it. Number two, if it's a wicked thing, we shouldn't be enforcing it at the point of a gun. So you can evaluate uh, the stated mission, that, uh, and we still have that as our mission today. We think that we're divinely ordained to plant democracies all around the world. Well, is that a biblical form of government? Is that something we ought to be doing? Well, the answer is no. So a defense of national borders, a defense of our people, is biblically defensible as a just cause, but being the world's policeman, doing all the things that we're doing, uh, gallivanting about, are not. Now, for many, of, uh, for many Christians, the whole discussion of how to behave with Christian charity in the middle of, a, of bloody carnage, how, Jesus said to love your enemies. How can we say that it's all right to go to war? What are you talking about? If one of our Quaker brothers or Mennonite brother, he said, what are you, get real, how can you love your enemies and, and then go and try and uh, go try to kill them? Um, conclude with two, um, two observations. One is uh, my father 
who had worked and served with military men uh, for many years, knew, I'm not sure if it was in Vietnam or in Korea, but he knew of a group of American fighter pilots who would they'd fly into combat regularly, and every day before they flew into combat, they'd get together and they'd pray for the enemy. Right? They'd, they'd get together and they'd say, Lord, we don't know who we're going to go into combat against. We don't know what we're up against. We don't know where they are. We don't know if there's anybody there that you're drawing to yourself. If there is, we ask that you protect them from us. Um, you know, they just, they just went to the Lord, and they were very clearly loving their enemies. And then they would go and do their duty as Christian uh, fighting men, Christian military men. Another instance, I was reading an article one time by a pacifist. And this pacifist, and, and this, is, this is a very important distinction to make. This pacifist, in most uh, situations, if someone is uh, speaking or articulating pacifism out of the Christian tradition, he'll say something, he assumes the stance of moral superiority. You say, thou shalt not kill. This is the higher standard. And then oftentimes those Christians who are not pacifists will say, yes, but that's just not realistic. And so the person who's the pacifist feels like, well, I've got the high ground and you're, you've compromised with the world's way of doing things, but I've got the high ground. Well, this was an article written by a pacifist who was quite frankly flummoxed by a military man. He, this moral superiority that he felt was just completely undone. And this is how it happened. He narrated in the article how it happened. He was watching uh, an American POW come back from Vietnam. He'd been released after some years. And he got off the plane. And this man had been tortured, right, just uh, horribly abused, tortured. And this man uh, was, was speaking to the reporters and everything. And they were talking about his mistreatment and his torture. And this man was a Christian, the POW who was released. And he said, well, what God enabled me to do was love these people. The, the people that were torturing me, they, they'd come to me every day and they'd, they'd mistreat me, abuse me, and torture me. I was able to love them. I was able to pray for them. I was able to bless, you know, seek, seek a blessing for them. Just God gave me great grace to love my enemies. They were torturing me. And this was up close and personal. You, your enemy is right there and he's, and he's torturing you. And then the reporter said, well, would you fly into combat against them again? And he said, well, of course. Of course. Now who has the moral high ground? Right? The person who... the Natural wisdom can understand fighting, and natural wisdom can understand not fighting. Right? That's the natural man both ways. The natural man can understand wanting peace, and the natural man can understand wanting war. But the natural man cannot understand going to war and being in control and in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one thing that only grace can provide. Father, we thank you for our time together. I pray that as we think through these things, our, our time of uh, our break here and our fellowship together would be good. I pray that you would give us clarity of mind as we think about these things. Father, I pray that you'd be, enable us by your grace to apprehend and comprehend what you've given. Father, I pray you do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast.